0: The title of tonight's talk is Calling Forth All the Love in Our Hearts. It's a talk that was inspired by a woman named Deepa Ma. For those of you who have been sitting here for a number of years, you've heard many stories of this woman. A small Bengali woman who touched the hearts of many. She actually came to IMS once. Uh, many people here have met her personally, and although I was not of the good fortune to be one of the people who knew her personally, recently she really touched my life. She really inspired me. I read the new book about her, Knee Deep in Grace, which is uh, has been put together by Amy Schmidt, the, one of the resident teachers here. As I read the book, it was like this fire started to burn through me. And it called into question my own life. Am I doing enough? Am I really living this practice? Or am I getting caught in just thinking that I'm doing it? It called into question my desire to awaken it helped me to re-establish the connection with this aspiration. One of the things about Deepama is that there was not just this fiery energy, there was also an energy filled with compassion, gentleness, tenderness. This I felt like I did have some experience with, As one time I had a dream, I dreamt that I was sobbing and sobbing, and I had my head in her lap, and she was gently patting me on the back and rocking me. I felt touched by her compassion. The story of Deepama's life is quite remarkable, and I will only touch briefly on it. But it, in itself, is the inspiration, the, the model that she was. Because she was not a being who um, just suddenly became realized. She rose out of the depths of her suffering. She was married at the age of twelve. I can imagine back to being 12 years old, and that must be quite shocking. (laughs) Um, And within a couple years of being married, she was sent off to another country to be with her husband, a foreign country. So she left the ties of her family at 14. And then uh, it happened in her life that she didn't give birth till quite late in her life. And if you've been to Asia, you know that women are highly regarded for their ability to give birth. And so that in itself was traumatic for her. So finally, she gave birth to a baby girl. And this baby died after three months. She was grief stricken, she had heart problems. And it was four years before she gave birth to another child, a child named Deepa. Soon after that she was to give birth to a boy. But the boy, too, was to die at birth. She was further grief-stricken, tormented, feeling broken. She wanted to meditate, but her husband kept saying, No, wait, wait until you're older which is something that's quite common in the East too, that in the latter stages of a life some, the, someone will devote themselves to spiritual practice. So he was encouraging her to wait. At this time, her husband... Um, It was very loving. It was not from a harsh place that he had said this. But still, it caused her to be overwhelmed by this sadness. And she became so sick that she had to stay in bed. that She was bedridden. This meant that her husband had to care for Deepa, the small child, and Deepa Ma, the older woman. He also had a full-time job as an engineer. This proved to be a lot for him, and one day he suddenly died of a heart attack. And then Dipama was left alone with this young girl to bring up. She was in a foreign country where her family wasn't present. It was too much for her. It was unbearable, just so much pain. When she uh, was in this state, her health began to deteriorate even more. And then one day, one night, she had a dream about the Buddha, where he chanted a verse from the Dhammapada. He said, where he chanted, which I will say, Clinging to what is dear brings sorrow. Clinging to what is dear brings fear. To one who is entirely free from endearment. There is no sorrow or fear. When she awoke from this dream of having met the Buddha, having heard this stanza, she woke up calm and peaceful, and with the resolve in her heart that she must awaken, and that she knew she had the wisdom to know The path to awakening was meditation. She wanted to practice until she was free from all attachment and sorrow. Out of her suffering arose this this desire to awaken. She came to practice with a very strong determination. And in a very short period of time, she had insight that was transformative. Out of this, her health improved and her grief vanished. She continued to practice for the rest of her life. She also began to teach. She began to share what she had experienced. And one major piece of it was, no matter how much we have suffered, suffered, no matter how much pain we experience, freedom is possible. Possible for each and every one of us. The aspect that is really inspiring to me is how she had this courageousness of heart and was so filled with gentleness and compassion, found a balance of right effort in this. We find that this is evident in her statement where she says, Practice without regard for body or life with all the love in your heart. Practice without regard for body or life, without all, with all the love in your heart. In the book, Knee Deep in Grace, Amy Schmidt says, Deepama perfected a mature form of effort, one that encompasses both strength and ease, the masculine and the feminine. Practice requires more than a zealous samurai warrior attitude. It also demands that we find compassion and love within ourselves. We can come to practice like Deepama from a place of childlike wonder that is invincible in its truth and sincerity. So Deepama, an example of a being, who embodied the courageous heart, through her living example, has inspired so many. When she talks about calling forth all the love in our hearts, it's not such a simple task. We find that our hearts are covered over with many habits, habits of fear, terror, habits of not being good enough, can't do it, judging ourselves. And yet, one way that we can have a sense of calling forth the love, all the love in our hearts, is to look at how we approach the practice how we come to the practice. We can let it be on fire with our aspirations, our motivations. We can let it be rooted in our sense of possibility, the sense that the freedom that Deepa Ma talked about is possible for us. We can become very deeply motivated by this aspiration to awaken. To, we might all have different words for how we feel it in our hearts, whether it's to awaken, to be liberated, to be free, to be at ease and at peace. To know truth. To know it for ourselves not letting ourselves be stuck in the intellectual understanding of it. Can we take in? It's possible for us. So when we come to practice, we can let the energy of our aspirations motivate us, pull us, bring us to our seat on the cushion. Suzuki Roshi once said, moment after moment, completely devote yourself to listening to your inner voice. As we sit, having that willingness to listen, a deep receptivity. As the voice of I can't, it's too much, I can't bear it, comes up to remember Dipama, in her strength, in the midst of suffering, how her aspiration, motivation arose. And the Buddha said that suffering is the proximate cause for the arising of faith. When suffering is present, And we don't turn our backs on it. We don't try to deny it or suppress it. But we turn towards the experience to see how it is that this mind that is intrinsically bright has become restricted, has become caught in this sorrow. The faith arises in these moments when we can let go of the chit-chat of the mind and be silently with the pain, be silently with our experience. I'd like to say a little bit more about the word aspiration itself because it can have a uh, have funny connotations in our society. Um, we come from a very goal-oriented society, and so we often have this image of aspirations as being something that we will become in the future. Often our aspirations are linked to careers, what we will do with our lives. I mean, remembering back to being a small child, and how many times will you ask, were you asked, what will you do with your life? What do you want to become? Not, how do you want to be? You know, it, it's, um, and we find with these aspirations that they can be on a really intellectual level, that they aren't the intuitive sense of aspiration. And so when we hear the word aspiration, we can start to hold it in that same way, where we hold it in the realm of becoming, like that carrot in front of our nose, that, you know, wish to be liberated, to be free, and I'll do this and this and this, I'll sit my three-month retreat and then I'll be free. No, and it, it doesn't happen like that. And it's not such a wise holding of this desire to be free. We need to learn to hold it in a really skillful way, to hold it in a way that it inspires us in this moment rather than binds us. And when we can learn to do that, it becomes uh, a strong motivating force, it helps to guide our lives, it helps us to make wise choices in, in the way of we're in a situation where we need to make a decision about what to do. Our aspiration can help us to see, is this going to lead to further greed, hatred and delusion, to further suffering? Or is this going to help to alleviate suffering, to unbind the heart? When we have the aspiration to be free, freedom is only possible here and now. So it turns us back to our experience rather than forward into becoming. So our aspirations can be an inclination of the heart, a movement of the heart towards wholeness, Towards the essential goodness that we at times feel stirring in us, whether it's those moments in suffering where we soften and open, or whether it's a moment when we step out into nature and we feel at ease and at peace, the chit-chat of the mind becomes stilled, and for a moment we don't feel separate. These are moments when we might touch into the sense of possibility. Many of us may not have clear words in our minds. You know, you can hear about having aspirations, motivations, and you sit here and you think, I don't know. And for me, how I began to have more of a sense of it was a felt sense. As I sat down on my cushion, there was a felt sense of, of alignment, a sense of sitting on the cushion with integrity, a sense of taking my place. The aspiration to awaken is said to be a wholesome quality necessary. Even though it's a wholesome quality, at times it can really make us uncomfortable. And it's quite likely there's times in our lives when we weren't really sure what was happening and it may have been a sense of this aspiration surfacing and we didn't have the wisdom to recognize it or to know it. I was reminded of this earlier this year when I traveled back to the city that I was born in. This city is in Canada. It's in the middle of the prairies. And when I was a child, I believed it was the middle of nowhere. (coughs) My urge was always to want to go, to get out of there, to um, find somewhere else. It was an urge that my parents actually move from that city, although we went and visited that city many times over the course of my teenage years. Um, it was always like journeying to the, the, you know, feeling like I was going to prison or going into a place where I, I could get stuck there. That was the fear. I would get stuck there. And so I would go there, and inside I would just go berserk. It would just the sense of wanting to lash out, so rebellious teenagers. What happened, and you know, just this, and it was just this raw energy. And yet, when I went back there this time, I could see it's actually a beautiful place. There's lots of attributes to it. What I had the sense of touching into that energy again and recognizing it as it was just the desire to be free. But it didn't know how to move. It didn't know what to do. And so it was just pushing, pushing all of the edges because there was a sense of something being wrong. And you know, it's so it's that urge for happiness. And we don't have the wisdom to really support it, to let it guide us. And yet it does. Because I know there came a point where I was introduced to practice at the age of 16. And it resonated. Something was like, whoa everything, you know, knowing that I was hearing something of value, meeting someone who meditated, and I didn't know what it was about that person, but I knew they were different. And, and it starts to become this homing instinct when we can follow it, let it guide us, and fortunately we become more skillful, so we aren't just bashing out at the world to try and find this happiness. It's a very strong force. I had a dog once who, um, somehow the story links to the the strength of this urge. She was a husky, beautiful dog. Her name was Sasha. We lived out in the country, and she was so close to being wild. It was amazing. Also a very sensitive being. One time I went to the city to visit my parents, and... um, Upon visiting them, we were in their house for a few days. And then I drove over to the opposite side of the city, which was, was about 45 minutes of driving through a city, all city in between. As I drove, Sasha laid in the back seat. And we got to my sister's house, got out of the car. My sister had a dog who was quite aggressive and territorial. I didn't kind of twig to how strongly so. And so I went into the house, left Sasha outside with the other dog. When I came out, Sasha was nowhere to be seen. So I looked around the neighborhood, you know, know, looked for hours for her. I went home, I put ads in the paper, you know, I did everything I could to to try and find her. And then several days later, it was like, she's gone. It's okay, this is what's happened. It happened that on the morning I was about to leave I went to the front door of my parents' house and I opened the door and there was Sasha. She was trembling and shivering. She was totally frightened. And yet this this urge inside her and I don't pretend to know about the instincts of animals and whatever but there was something that pulled her, that guided her. And we too have the same instinct. We just have to learn to listen. And this is what we do through the practice. This is what we do through nurturing this aspiration with mindfulness. We call forth. it's crucial that we learn to nourish these aspirations or they become some ideological concept in our minds that we fail to live up to over and over again and then get harder on ourselves and they can even wither and die and we start to move listlessly through life. We start to shy away from anything that puts us um, in danger of feeling that urge, feeling afraid of what it might do. We can move into th- fear thinking of what our might look like. Life might look like if we follow through with this energy. And as a result, we start growing numb, start closing our hearts off. And in the worst case, We might not recognize this until we lay on our deathbed filled with regret and remorse. One time I was in Northampton and it was just after the New Year when New Year's resolutions are so brought brought up and and can be very healthy and helpful. And there was this man sitting out on the street with a sign that said, May your suffering last as long as your New Year's resolutions. (laughs) (laughs) We have to give these resolutions, aspirations, conditions to grow in. And so we sign up for a three-month retreat. And getting here, we have to call forth effort or energy. It's not enough to just have these aspirations. In Pali, the word for energy is virya. And virya has the quality of heroic energy, or courageous energy. This heroic, courageous energy is the energy through which we turn towards our difficulties, where we're not daunted by our experience. There's a story that to me represents something of heroic Effort or energy. It's about a musician named Itzhak Perryman. He's a violinist and uh, some years ago was playing in New York City. Perryman had polio as a child and as a result he wore braces on both of his legs and walked with two crutches. So at this concert, as he entered onto the stage, He moved very slowly, very painfully, and yet majestically within that pain. When he would get to his chair, he would have to slowly lower himself down and then take off the braces, put down the crutches, um, and he'd tuck one foot back and one foot forward. and then bending down and picking up his violin. As he does all this, the audience had become used to it. People who had seen him before knew of this, waited quietly, patiently, watching him move. And this story that I'm telling comes from someone who was present in the audience this night. They waited until he was ready to play, But this time, something went wrong. Just as he finished the first few bars, one of the strings on his violin broke. You could hear it snap. It went off like gunfire across the room. There was no mistaking what that sound meant. There was no mistaking what he had to do. People who were there that night thought to themselves. We figured that he would have to get up, put on the clasps again, pick up the crutches and limp his way off stage." to either find another violin or else find another string for this one. But he didn't. Instead, he waited a moment. He closed his eyes, and then he signaled the conductor to begin again. The orchestra began, and he played from where he had left off, and he played with such passion and such power and such purity as they had never heard before. Of course, Anyone knows that it is impossible to play a symphonic work with just three strings. I know that, and you know that, but that night, Yitzhak Perriman refused to know that. You could see him modulating, changing, and recomposing the piece in his head. At one point, it sounded like he was detuning the strings to get new sounds from them that they had never made before. When he finished, there was an awesome silence in the room and then people rose and cheered. There was an extraordinary outburst of applause from every corner of the auditorium. We were all on our feet, screaming and cheering, doing everything we could to show how much we appreciated what he had done. He smiled. He wiped the sweat from his brow. He raised his brow to quiet us, and then he said beautifully, but in a quiet, pensive, reverent tone, You know, sometimes it's the artist's task to find out how much music you can still make with what you have left. He faced his challenge. He didn't shy away from it. He gave himself over to it with all the love in his heart. He wasn't daunted by the thoughts that This isn't the optimal conditions. He worked with the conditions that are present. We might have come to the retreat and discovered that it wasn't the optimal conditions, wasn't the way we thought it was going to be. We might have become daunted. Maybe we were sick. Maybe right before we came, something had happened that triggered a process in us that didn't feel finished and we feel, have the feeling we need to get rid of this in order to be here. But what we can do is work with whatever karmic conditionings have come together in this moment. Working with this karmic unfolding. bringing forth this heroic effort that Perryman had on this evening. This courageous energy helps us to face our fears, helps to face the fears that can keep us bound, isolated. Often, our deepest aspirations are covered over by these fears. The belief that we're not good enough, we can't do it. The doubt that Susan spoke about the other night. This can all cover over these deep aspirations. Can all Fear can bind us, and yet, here we are, sitting in a place of practice learning to bring mindfulness to our experience. This is the tool that we have. And this can be the tool that we may not have had when we were in traumatic instances in our life. But now we learn to use this tool to help us to face these fears. Having a courageous heart doesn't mean that we won't experience fear, but just that we won't be stopped by the fear, or we won't be run by it. And we have to see, sometimes we will have strong energy and we will be able to go right to the intensity of the fear. And sometimes we'll only touch the edges of it. We'll only be aware of it being there and having to call forth in those moments the compassion and gentleness and tenderness to hold this being that's in suffering with tenderness. Aung San Suu Kyi, who many of you probably know, was once elected to be the democratic leader in Burma, but was never allowed to rule because of the military regime, spent many years under house arrest, and has also been a, a being who has this courageous heart that hasn't she hasn't let herself be stopped by her fear. And yet in her when she once spoke about fear, And it wasn't about the fear not being there. She says, Fearlessness may be a gift, but perhaps more precious is the courage acquired through endeavor. Courage that comes from cultivating the habit of refusing to let one's own fear dictate one's actions. Courage that can only be described as grace under pressure. So in hearing about heroic effort, not to think that you need to be fearless. This is not the message. But can we face these fears? Talking about courageous energy or the heroic quality can bring to mind warrior-like images that can get us caught in struggle. They can throw us into the energy of striving, of pushing, of wanting. This is once again where we're holding our aspiration in an unskillful way. And it's common at the beginning of a long retreat. We do come with that determination. We do come with a strong conviction And yet, we have to let our effort be balanced. We have to let it be inclusive of how things are unfolding. It can't just be the force of the wanting mind. At times, we might actually find that what we're calling our aspirations is really our expectations. That we've come to the retreat with expectations. And these get hammered in the first period of practice. I don't know if you're still holding on to them, but they take a a, um, bashing and they become quite painful when we hold them in unskillful ways. I know for myself, I held an image of what a good meditator was, what a good meditator looked like. And that good meditator, that good yogi, turned up in the hall for every sitting, walking, um, was mindful every moment from the beginning of the day to the end of the day, and it didn't matter if the body was falling apart. You just kept going. You, and so I found myself sitting in Burma. And the conditions there were difficult. I mean, everywhere you practice has its own set of difficulties. So not to say they're any more difficult than here. But I was getting worn down. And I was caught in this energy of striving. And, the, you know, my energy was starting to badly fail at times. And so that would just... I. Get more rigid, more tight, and start pushing even more, and just exhausting myself. My body became just this toothpick. It was the skinniest I've ever seen myself in my life. You know, I was reminded of the images of the Buddha at the time when you could—he could touch uh, his back from g- touching the front. I was pretty close. <laughs> and then one day, I was sitting in a Dharma talk, and my teacher was Sayada Ujanaka. And he was talking about right effort or energy. And he said, sometimes we have it, and other times we'll feel more depleted. And then he says, why? Why is this so? When he said that, I was sitting on the edge of my cushion, just waiting for the answer. And he said, because we are human. Somehow I'd missed this point. Because we are human. Because we are human, we work with this body. The heroic effort or energy is in meeting our experience in this moment in whatever way we can. We can get a little confused when we listen to Deepama's statement where she said to practice without regard for body or life. One aspect of this is when we don't let the worry, the fear about this body dominate, we don't become run by it. I know I've spoken to a number of people um, just in the interviews to date who are being well exposed to sickness, old age, and death, the heavenly messengers. And it sets off anxiety in the mind. It sets off fear. But we can learn to practice with these aging bodies. We can learn to practice with sickness that still holds true to this aspiration to awaken but also calls forth the love in our hearts, the tenderness, the quality of compassion, of care. Sometimes it's just simply recognizing when we've moved into that wanting that pushing trying to push through our illness trying to push through our pain sometimes we actually have to take care of this body you know we need to feed the body we need to have a certain amount of exercise to just have to to allow this body to continue and what we find when we stay true to our aspiration is that whatever we do, we let that be our practice. So there may be times in our practice where we can follow the schedule really strictly. Sitting, walking, sitting, walking. And that's really helpful. It's great at those times. And then we may hit a time when that's not possible. But rather than dropping your practice, rather than saying, oh, I just have to go to my room and um, take care of myself, we take care of ourselves in each moment. Whether it's walking to the refrigerator to get that ice pack we have to put on our back. Whether for one sitting we need to sit up in an M101 and sit where the back is more supported. We still learn to do whatever it is we have to do. Keeping awareness by our side. Mindfulness. And this is where we can. if we stop struggling, stop straining, we can touch into the natural quality of mindfulness. I know this from my own experience. From my own experience of being so sick, all I could do was to lay there and be aware of my breath. And relaxing into that awareness was so restful. There was no longer any energy to fight, to struggle. All that one could do was be present. And it, it showed me how natural that is. And when we're sick, we don't have the energy to fight, to strain. Can we relax and be receptive and still listen to that urge to awaken. Our heroic effort won't always be as Itzhak Perimen displayed, but it can often be experienced in just the simplicity of remembering to come back. Remembering to come back to this breath, this moment, just staying steady in that effort. I'd like to speak a little bit now about just how big our aspirations can be. How we don't have to be meager or miserly in our aspirations. And in fact, letting them be big can bring an even stronger energizing force into our lives. We find this with the aspiration of bodhicitta. Bodhi means awakened and citta means mind. Bodhicitta means the purified and fully developed heart-mind, the awakened mind. The practice of bodhicitta is where we journey on this path of awakening, not just to benefit ourselves, but to let our practice be of benefit for all beings. This energy helps to bring a real integrity and purpose into our practice that is not just self-referencing, not just so that we can be free from pain and suffering, but that through this practice, all beings everywhere can benefit. I know I first started doing this practice because of my own pain and suffering. And at one point I began to notice that as I became more calm, peaceful, It had an effect in the world. And then the aspiration starts to shift even more when we recognize that our initial reason for doing the practice can be very vast, unlimited, can be so that the power of the awakened mind can touch all beings everywhere. We find that our aspirations give rise to faith, to the sense of possibility that we can rise up to the full capacity of being a human being. We start trusting in our own potential and we call forth all the love in our hearts. This brings about a tremendous energy into our practice, into the work that we're doing here. An energy that's not daunted by our difficulties, but helps to bring a steadiness to our efforts. And at the same time, it helps us to be able to surrender to the process, to the unfolding. And that we can let this work that we do here be for the benefit of all beings everywhere. I'd like to close with... um, A prayer that expresses to me the vastness of our aspirations, of what they can be. This is from Shantideva, who was a great Indian meditation master from the 8th century. This is called the Seven Branch Prayer. May I be a guard for those who are protectorless, a guide for those who journey on the road, for those who wish to go across the water, may I be a boat, a raft, a bridge. May I be an isle for those who yearn for landfall, and a lamp for those who long for light. For those who need a resting place, a bed. For all who need a servant, may I be a slave. May I be the wishing jewel, the vase of plenty, a word of power, and the supreme remedy. May I be the tree of miracles, and for every being, the abundant cow. Like the great earth and the other elements, enduring as the sky itself endures, for the boundless multitude of living beings, may I be the ground and vessel of their life. And thus, for every single thing that lives, in numbers like the boundless reaches of the sky, may I be their sustenance and nourishment, until they pass beyond the bounds of suffering. So let's just sit for a moment. This talk was given by Maya Shin Kelly at Insight Meditation Society on September 26, 2002. It is an offering of the. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit slash donate.